We are in Exodus chapter 4. It's where we'll start. We're going to do some, some turning. Uh, so don't just uh, close your Bible and think that's all the Bible you're going to get. Uh, actually, we're going to start at the end of chapter... Or go to Exodus 3, just to, just to set the context a little bit. Uh, but what we've done is in our study of Genesis, we were at the story of Melchizedek. And Melchizedek is such a crucial narrative to understand the Bible in general. But in order to understand that narrative, we have to go back and to see the role that the priests play. Um, the way we typically think of priests in the Bible is uh, the Aaronic priesthood, uh, climaxing with the Pharisees and Sadducees and all of them in the New Testament and all that. It's the way we think of it. But, but more broadly speaking, the role of the priest is, is quite significant. There's really two lines, if you will. There is the uh, uh, Levitical line. Uh, that begins with Aaron. And then there is this, this other line, this divine line of priests. And what we saw last week is that begins with Adam. And we can trace it to Adam, to, to Noah, to uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, uh, Melchizedek, Jethro. We, we can keep tracing it through. And, and we see that these obviously predate Aaron. So it's a different priesthood. And, and, and you remember what we said about Melchizedek is it's, it's of that similar vein. And later, when, when the writer of Hebrews is thinking about these issues, he, he makes it very clear that Jesus is not of the line of Levi. He's a different kind of high priest. And it was very important that the Messiah be a high priest because this is all established uh, and anticipated in the Old Testament. And, and the connection the writer of Hebrews makes is Melchizedek. But it isn't just Melchizedek. Um, and so it'll take us at least probably two more weeks for us to... The really climax, probably three or four more weeks, honestly. But so what we want to do is we want to look at the story with emphasis on Moses and Aaron, uh, and and see the, the the what what role they play in in the storyline. So let's start in chapter three. I really want to focus on chapter four, but chapter three will, will give us an important context here. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he. Uh, led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Now, this is, uh, this is where I believe, some of y'all can quote me on this or, or, or correct me. Uh, I believe this is where um, Abraham goes to offer. No, 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 it's not. This is Mount Sinai. I'm going to get my stories mixed up. Forgive me. This is what happens when you do things at the top of your head. Uh, this is Mount Sinai. So it's significant. This is the mountain of God. This is where man meets God. And later, of course, in Exodus 19 and, and what follows for you know, 10 years or whatever it is, uh, they are right there at where the burning bush is, at the foot of the mountain, Mount Sinai, where the Ten Commandments are. And we'll, we'll come more to that narrative. Um, but also, I want you to notice this. What is Moses? What is his job? His job is that of shepherd. Now, I asked this question last week. Who in the Bible embodies prophet, priest, king, and shepherd? The ultimate answer is Jesus. Uh, but it, David, we'll see David, Lord willing, next week. But you can also look at Moses and Abraham. Each of them function in their own unique way. Moses isn't a king, but he's clearly the leader of Israel. And he, he stands before Pharaoh as a type of king. Let my people go, right? Not your people, let, let my people go. So he, he, he functions in all those roles. This may help you understand the 40 years of, of, of wilderness exploring that Moses goes through. It is for him to train to think like a shepherd while he functions as a prophet, priest, and king. He speaks to Pharaoh as a prophet. He stands there as king, but as we'll see, he will mediate as, as priest. So here he is as a shepherd at Mount Horeb. 
Verse 2, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in the flame of the fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, for the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. He said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob and Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. Now, now if, if you take the broader picture of Moses, this is where Moses starts. Where he's going to be um, later is he is going to go up to the mountain. Remember, he wants to see God, right? And the Shekinah glory of God. Uh, he has to veil his face, which is a, a type of temple. Um, so, so what, what a, what a, a uh, uh, character arc he has. Here, he, he, he doesn't want to come near. And later, he, he wants to come nearer. Uh, and, and, and so he didn't want to look at God. Then he does want to look at God. So we see that character arc with, with Moses. Uh, I, I do want you to notice a, a few things here. One, uh, we think of it as the burning bush, whatever that is. And uh, it's, it's really cool. Uh, kids love it. And then we move on. But remember, you have to read the Bible um, as the text presents it, but also in light of the biblical narrative. Remember, the Bible is one story. That's it's sort of what, what we're doing here with this discussion of priests. And here, uh, whenever you see a tree and the presence of God, what should come to your mind? The Garden of Eden. Uh, And this is what you're going to have. Later, at this mountain, the emphasis won't be on a tree. It'll be on God ascending into the cloud at the top of the mountain. And it is at the top of the mountain where God dwells, or the gods dwell in ancient Near Eastern Talk. So, so the high places, right? You would have altars at the high places. Remember, the, the Greek gods, Zeus, Hermes, and all of them, they were at the top of Mount Olympus. Man couldn't reach up to the gods. Uh, they, they, they were up there. And, and so if you could reach the top of the mountain, you could reach the gods. And Moses, we'll see that here in a second. He, he, he will ascend up there. So, so we need to see here that this is holy ground, and at its center is a tree. Well, that, that, all of that makes sense. Um, and then skip over to chapter 4. We, we, we see uh, God calling them. Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice. For they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, A staff. He said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. The Lord said to Moses, put, your, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand, that they may believe that the Lord... Uh, that is Yahweh, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, has appeared to you. Again, Yahweh, the, the divine name, the one he met in the bush, uh, put your hand inside your cloak. He did it. Or I, I, I don't want to spend, spend forever on this. Um, and then, so, so notice here, Moses is going through this pattern where he, he, he's trying to get out of doing this. He comes up with all the excuses. They won't listen to me. I've got a bad stutter. Uh, I don't want to do it. All that sort of stuff. And go down to verse 10. Moses said to, to, to Yahweh, the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent. I'm not as eloquent as an elephant. Amanda will understand that reference. Either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. And the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seen or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Oh, wait, verse 11 is a fascinating verse for your personal theology. If you're going to study the doctrine of God, you've got to deal with chapter 4, verse 11. That God makes the mute, the blind, and the deaf. And that's something. By the way, read that and then go to John 9 with the blind man. Who sinned, this man or his parents? And Jesus says, neither, but that you may see the glory of God. And he heals him. 
Yeah, your theology isn't fully rounded out till you deal with verse 11. Um, anyways, that, that's a footnote that's free. Now, therefore, go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. So remember, he says, I, I don't know how to talk. And, and God says, well, I'll talk for you, right? Uh, he's still, I just don't want to do this. Verse 13, but he said, oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Oh, don't you love that? <laughs> it's, not, it's not here I am, send me. It's there he is, send him, right? <laughs> Whoever he is, just send him. I don't want to do it. You know, I mean, here's a guy who who was a prince, but he's become content with being a shepherd. That is ungodly contentment. Right. We, we often have to talk about godly contentment. Uh, just 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 appreciate what God has given you. There is ungodly contentment. And when God calls, you say, no, I'm fine the way I am. This describes the American church, perhaps more than anything. We have the Moses syndrome. Uh, just just send someone else, please, please. Um, Verse 14, then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. Now, this is striking. This is the first time we see God angry in the Bible. Now, God demonstrates his anger before this. Uh, uh, the, the, uh, the curses of, of Genesis 3, uh, Noah's Ark, Sodom and Gomorrah, all of that. This is the first time we, we really see God in his anger. Right? Um, and he, he says, uh, and notice it is kindled against Moses. This, this will pop up over and over again. God, God is kindling his anger against his own people because they are stiff, uh, stiff-necked and stubborn people. Right? This is going to be a pattern you're, you're going to see. Uh, and what, notice what he says there, verse 14. Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know he can speak well. Behold, he's coming out to meet you. When he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. Uh, so on and so forth. Now, this is the first time we hear of the name Aaron. Moses has a brother named Aaron, and he's a slave. Now, Moses, remember, his name means son of. It's an Egyptian name. So you've probably heard of uh, Thut, Thut Moses, what it looks like. He's an Egyptian. It means the son of Thut, one of the Egyptian gods. Moses is without that. And the question is, whose son is Moses in the narrative? We, 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 we did the whole book of Exodus on Sunday mornings years ago, and we, we explored all that. And so, so if we were to add another subject on top of prophet, priest, king, and shepherd, we could add sonship to this. That Moses is going to go get uh, God's sons back and, and gather his people back. And the person that's going to do it is named son of. And the question is, whose son is he? Is he Pharaoh's son or is he Jacob's son? Right? It's the beauty of, of, of the Bible. It really is. He starts out as Pharaoh's. He ends up being the, the son of, of Yahweh. So this is the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Right? That's, that's, that's narrative. So, um, uh, so you have all this going on. Now, notice Moses, God demonstrates to Moses that, that, that God will provide everything he needs. The main signal, symbol, is serpent, Right? That, that he will put his staff down and it will turn to a serpent. And then he will grab it by its tail, not by the back of the neck. So, so the most precarious way to grab a snake. Um, and yet you will exercise authority over a serpent. Now, if you've been reading your Bible all the way back to Genesis, that serpent language should stick out to you. We're looking for one who is the seed of the woman. Now we have a guy named son of. Whose son is he? Who's his father? Who's his mother? Right? Who now exercises authority over serpents. And where is God sending him? God calls him at a burning bush, holy ground, at a mountain, to go to Pharaoh, whose emblem, his main symbol, is that of a cobra. 
And there he is to say, let my people go, and God will use him to do precisely that. And what, what happens is that a redemption. The problem is, is again, Moses is quite stubborn. He's a Southern Baptist. And, and he doesn't want to do it. So God says, I tell you what, send your brother, the slave, who's eloquent. And it is at this moment we get a split in, with this issue of, of, of priesthood. And you need to see it this way. Because notice the language of verse 14. Who is Aaron? Aaron is the Levite. I didn't catch this until today. This will blow your mind. If Aaron is a Levite, what is Moses? He's a Levite. (laughs) You never noticed that before. I didn't. I never caught that. Never in my life. Never asked. What tribe is Moses? I didn't care. Well, he's he's Pharaoh's boy, right? He ain't one of us, right? He's a Levite. Isn't that incredible? So here we have this split, and it shows up in the narrative that Aaron will, will be given is his family line among the Levites. So within the tribe, you have a family line where the high priest will come from. But the Levites in general will, will play the role of priests. And here is the split, and it is here where things really start to, to unravel. Because Aaron, on the one hand, is a good, godly man. On the other hand, he is a hot mess. He is an absolute hot mess. So uh, skip over to, to chapter, um, it says chapter 12. That, I don't know if that sounds right. Let me double check that. No, it's chapter 24. Sorry. I knew that didn't sound right. Chapter 24 Verses, uh, yeah, 6, six to 18. Um, so this is after they're, out, they're at, out at the mountain, okay? And God is going to uh, uh, address his covenant, confirm his covenant. Go, go up to verse 6 here. Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half the blood he threw against the altar. He took the book of the covenant and read in the hearing of the people, and they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They, be, they beheld God and ate and drank. Just pause there for a minute. Notice here, who is the one consecrating the people on the altar? It's not Aaron. It's Moses. It's Aaron's job. But Moses is doing it. I've never noticed this. Like, I knew Moses was doing it, but I never noticed the significance of it. And then notice, particularly in verses 9 to 11, note the language there that, that you have... You have Moses, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu. So you have, you have the, the line of high priests, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu. They're going to show up later. They're, they're pieces of work. They don't live very long. So, so you have the split of the priests, Moses, Aaron, Aaron's sons, and your high priest. And then you've got 70 elders. Is the number 70 significant? Yeah, it's 7 times 10. Both 7 and 10 are significant. And don't forget, we're really where we see that is in connection with uh, Cain's descendant, that... that uh, Remember, it's Lamech. He says that I will be avenged 70-fold. Right? So this number 70 is important. 
70 will later the Septuagint, the Greek translation of, of the Hebrew Bible, is, Septuagint means 70, LXX in Roman numerals, because it said that 70 scholars translated the Hebrew into Greek. Later, Jesus will send out 70 witnesses. So that 70 is important. So, so they're going to ascend to the mountains to meet with God. How is it, how is it described there? Um, there was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, as if it were heaven. So, so, so you have the work of the priests cleansing the people and, and, and ushering in this, this new covenant in fulfillment of, of what was made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? And, and we'll see this when we get to chapter 15 in, in 40 weeks. The, the process of covenant and fall will, will affect them here. There's a renewing of that covenant, but, but it's developing the covenant as the nation of Israel. This is all happening at Sinai. And Moses is, asking, is acting as priest while his brother is standing right there. And, and they're standing in what is holy ground at, at, on the mountain. This is, this is God coming down. God's dwelling with his people. This is the Garden of Eden. This is, this is everything that we've, we've seen. And the priest must stand at the middle of it. But here, notice, you have the Aaronic priesthood, but it's not Aaron's role that is, that is at play here. It's Moses' role as priest. Um. Yeah, and then, then go down to verse, verse 12. The Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there. I may give you the tablets of stone and the law and the commandments, which I have written for the instruction. Notice this is Moses, not, the, not Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, or the 70. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up to the mountain of God. He said to the elders, wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Notice now the role of the priest. We talked about this with Adam. They have a role of guarding. They have a role of teaching. As We'll see that in more detail here, here in a second. Verse 15. Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. Now, is six days significant? Yes. Yes, this is the story of creation. Because you'll notice now on the seventh day, he called to Moses out in the midst of the, of the, of the cloud. All of this is significant, taking us back to creation. It's the perfect number. And it is Moses who is called to, to this, not Aaron. Now, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire. That takes us back to the burning bush. God is often portrayed as uh, the old third day song, a consuming fire. Right, that fire imagery is all over the place. It is the fire imagery that guides them at night in the cloud by day. So here you have both the cloud and the fire right here with Moses. It's, it's God himself. Uh, on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel, Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Now, is 40 important? Yeah, Noah's Ark. Noah's Ark. And what's the story of Noah's Ark? Story of creation. Right? We, we, we've mentioned this a million times. The waters cover the earth. Right? So you get darkness because the rain, waters cover the earth. Day one, darkness, light. Day two, uh, uh, you, you, you've, you've got the firmament together. Right? And, right? and as it starts to evaporate, what happens? The land comes out of the water. It's day three. It's not an accident. He sends birds out. Right? And, and, and so eventually, what do you get? When he gets off the boat, right? he's, he's, on a, he's on a mountain called Rest. Day seven, he makes a sacrifice. Why? Because he's a priest, like Adam, is prophet, priest, and king. And what does God say? Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. So here, we, we have all of that imagery right here. And from the, the, the vantage point of the people, what, what happened to Moses here? He ascended into heaven itself. He's gone. 
He's gone up to heaven, top of the mountain where the cloud and, and the fire goes. Now, for the sake of, of simplicity and, and for quickness here, uh, Moses makes a lot of trips up and down this mountain. I, I, he, was, he was getting up there in age, and it had to be rough on his knees. But he, he was going up, up and down, down this mountain, and uh, he does it seven times. On the seventh time he goes up this mountain, he waits the six days, and then on the seventh day, he, goes, he finally goes up, the cloud covers, and he stays there for 40 days. Does any of this detail sound significant to you? Well, of course, of course it is. And it is him who is cleansing the people and giving them the law, not Aaron. Well, let's look at one more passage, Exodus 32. Actually, we're going to look at several more, but just for introduction. Exodus 32. Verse 30 to 34. Now, this is the context of the golden calf. Moses is up on the mountain for 40 days. Aaron, who was appointed by God because of Moses' stubbornness, now is starting to act like his brother. And we see here that um, the Bible blames Aaron for this. You can blame it on the people, and you should. But the Bible blames Aaron. Moses says that while I'm up there, you have Aaron and her to look after you. Listen to them. God has consecrated them as your priests. But what are the priests doing while Moses is gone in the presence of God? He, 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 he's like Adam. He's like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Consecrating a call by God as a type of priest, but he's, he's a real piece of work. So he makes the golden calf, falls down, worship it, all that sort of stuff. And when Moses finds out, what does Moses do? He literally does what the people did. He breaks the Ten Commandments. Right? But one is a, a literal rendering throws it down, breaks it. The other is a spiritual act of breaking the Ten Commandments. I mean, number one is don't make an idol and worship other gods. Right? That's one and two. He comes down and says, well, we didn't even get past page one of the rule book. Right? And then, then there's everything else associated with, 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 with that Egyptian god. So notice what Moses is doing, chapter 32, verse 30 to, to 34. The next day, Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin. Now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Now who is it that makes atonement? the priests, not Aaron. So Moses here is acting as mediator and priest. This is what the priest does. So when later you get the, the day of atonement, the Levitical priest will cleanse themselves in order to enter the presence of God to cleanse the people. This is what Moses is doing here. Before all that is laid out, this is what Moses is doing. In order to cleanse the people, there must be atonement, and a priest must make that atonement. And he must go into the presence of God to offer this. This is the same imagery you're getting in the tabernacle and the temple. And this is why later when Jesus dies as the atonement, as, as priest and as lamb, the veil in the temple was torn. Because you no longer enter into a tent. You go through a veil into the presence of God. Right? The presence of God is there upon the cross. And so he, he does that. He makes atonement. Verse 31, so Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. This is the mediator. So he, he isn't just offering himself as the priest. He's offering himself as the lamb. This is foreshadowing of the cross. Verse 33, but the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Again, Moses as 
degrees. And so the point is for us to see, yes, there's clear connection to Jesus. That's ultimately what we're getting. And there's a little bit beyond that I want us to see. But um, you see that Moses then is a type of Christ. He's a type of Christ because he is prophet, priest, king, and shepherd. And son, I should add, son of. So, so you have these two priesthoods right here in Exodus, the, the, the Pentateuch, Exodus, uh, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So let's talk more specifically about the erotic priesthood. What is it that, that the priests established in the law, what are they supposed to do? I want to look at this quickly because we've already gone beyond what, what I intended. Um, you see, I did take a lot of stuff out. It may not seem like it. Um, first of all, they are limited to the descendants of Aaron. This, this is the, the big idea I want you to see. Uh, so it'll say in chapter 28, uh, then bring near to you Aaron and your, uh, your brother and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests. Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. So, so the priesthood established with Aaron, but in the narrative, we see a true and better priest. That's the point. The Bible loves this tension. So we, we, we're to see that there's only one priest. You have to be a Levite of the, of the family of Aaron. That, that'll change with Eli and Samuel and all that. But, but for now, well, of, the, of the family of Aaron. But while that is true, there's this other guy usurping Aaron. And the Bible sees it as a good thing. God receives Moses as priest, not Aaron, after the golden calf. Um, secondly, they made atonement on behalf of Israel. Again, we just saw this with Moses, but he's not Aaronic. He, he's, he's, he's his own, own God. So we see, again, this is just one example. I give you thousands of them. Uh, the priest who is anointed and consecrated as priest in his father's place, so the high priest, shall make atonement wearing the holy linen garments. This is the day of atonement, Leviticus 16, one of the most important chapters uh, in, in all the Bible. Uh, thirdly, what the priests do is they bless the people of Israel. Again, we saw that in chapter 24, Moses doing that. So we see in number six, uh, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and his son saying, thus you shall bless the people of Israel. Now notice here, Moses isn't supposed to bless the people. Aaron and his sons are. Right? This, this is why the Bible gets really confusing. But once you see it, it's beautiful. It's fantastic because you see how well the Bible is put together. Bless the people you shall say to them, Lord bless you and keep you. Cause his face shine upon you, be precious unto you. My home pastor, before the end of every service, he, he, he read from number six. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be blessed. You know, all that. So maybe you grew up with that sort of tradition or heard this sort of blessing. Uh, but notice it is the priest's job to bless the people. Fourthly, the Aaronic priesthood is to determine the will of God. So if you read the story of the kings, right? So it can be David or Solomon or, or Saul or Uzziah or Hezekiah or, or whoever, they will, they'll, they'll have prophets, yes, but it's the priests that will discern the will of God, particularly early on. Later, the prophets really take that over with the corruption of the priests. But, um, so we see this right from the beginning. So uh, in Exodus 28, uh, in the breastpiece of judgment, you shall put the Urim and the Thummim. Look, I don't know what those are. No matter how many times I look it up, it's explained. I don't know what they are. What I can tell you is that Joseph Smith knows what they are, the founder of the Mormon church. He used the ermine and the thumen as part, as well as weird other things, uh, treasure hunting spectacles that from, uh, um, he used masonry for, for some of this, like, like the masons, part of the masons. In order to, to uh, translate the Book of Mormon from Reformed Egyptian, he got from the angel Moroni. It gets really trippy. So the, the 
uh, Urin and the Thuman are important in, in Mormonism, whatever they are. Uh, and they shall be on Aaron's hearts, part of the, the priestly garment. When he goes in before the Lord, thus Aaron shall bear the judgment of the people of Israel on his heart before the Lord regularly. So he goes in, discerns the will of God. This is, this is his role as priest uh, to, to do this, this sort of stuff. Uh, fifthly, and finally, the, the role of, of the Aaronic priest is they are to instruct the people on the law of God. Um, and we saw Moses doing that earlier. Uh, we did. But uh, Deuteronomy 31, yeah, I got it up there. Uh, Moses wrote this law and gave it to the priests, the sons of Levi. Notice the significance of that. They carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and to all the elders of Israel. Moses commanded them at the end of every seven years. That sounds important. At a set time of the year uh, of release, the Feast of Booths, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God, the place that he will choose, you shall read this law before all Israel in, in, in their hearing. Assemble the men, assemble the women, assemble the children. You're going to read and instruct, uh, instruct this. The best example of this is Ezra, who is a priest post-captivity. Nehemiah is the governor. He's going to help build the wall. Ezra is the priest. He's going to reestablish uh, the uh, uh, cult of, of, of Israel. So he focuses on the temple and the function of the temple. And you remember that, 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 that scene that's quite striking is he stands up and all the people are silent before him. They've not heard the word of God forever. And he stands up and he reads the Pentateuch, all of it. And he preaches. He teaches, he instructs, he instructs the people. Remember when Josiah, uh, they discover the scrolls? And what does he do? He's got to get the priests. He's got to get the experts to come. What is this? It's their job to, to teach the people. This is the role of the priests. So that is the five primary functions. We can look at others. Five primary functions of, when we think of priests in the Bible, this, this is what it is, the, the, the Levitical priests. That's, that's their five functions. The problem is, is... They are often the villains of the story. This is obvious in the New Testament, right? It is the priests, like the Pharisees and Sadducees and the Sanhedrin, who are trying to trap Jesus. It is priests who are offering sacrifices in the temple while the true sacrifice is being offered outside the city of, of, of Jerusalem. It's the priests who corrupt justice and law to crucify Jesus. Right? So we, we get that they're villains in the New Testament. But you need to see that the way the Bible portrays them is, on the one hand, they are vital to the identity of Israel, thus good. But in reality, they're often portrayed in a bad way. By the way, this is true for all the major characters. We've seen it with Adam. We've seen it with Noah. We'll see it, we've already seen it with Abraham. We'll see it some more. Same with Isaac and Jacob. Uh, we'll see it with Moses and, and Aaron. We'll see it with Samuel and Saul and David and Solomon, all of them. So, so in, in one sense, it's the plan of God. Uh, there, there are prototypes in the side. At the, at the same time, they're broken humans, and, and what it is they have to offer is very limited. And so, so what we see, the priests really become villains. And the Bible goes out of the way to show that the spiritual guardians of Israel are weak, frail, and prone to disobedience. There's two good examples of the first two generations of priests that demonstrates this. The first is, of course, the golden calf. Aaron is the one that is blamed for the golden calf. So here, here's two examples. In chapter 32, Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin? Now notice, you brought a great sin, not the people. Now, did the people do it? Yes. 
But it's important for, for, for Aaron to see this and that we, the readers, see this in, in the broader picture that Aaron is the one to blame for here. He was, he was uh, put in charge. In verse 25, when Moses saw the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies. So Aaron is the one blamed for this. Okay? So the golden calf narrative really shows the, the frailty of, from the, from the very first generation, there's not even a tabernacle yet. And they're, they're already breaking it all. And it's the priest at the center of it. Then there is the story of Nadab and Abihu. Aaron has four sons. Two do not make it past day one of their priestly function. Nadab and Abihu offer strange fire. It's debated as to what that is, okay? And, and, and the options are all over the place. God kills them in the tabernacle. So, so remember that in Jewish mindset, a dead body means things were unclean. So now notice that when God judges Nadab and Abihu in the tabernacle, the tabernacle is now unclean. Day one of opening it. I mean, can you imagine opening a church or a business or a home and, and you don't make it past day one? I've had some, some uh, co-workers who didn't make it past day one, right? I mean, it sounded good on paper, but now that I'm here, I don't like any of it. So we get this in Leviticus 10. Now, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, that's important. Each took his censer and fire in it and laid incense on and offered unauthorized fire, strange fire for the Lord, which he had not commanded him. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. I mean, that's, that's wild. So you have Aaron terrible. Next generation, terrible. Now, the other two sons of Aaron, they keep it going, right? We, we saw them earlier, um, but this is going to be a pattern. If we have time at the end, which we probably won't, but I'll, I'll do my best, um, we'll, uh, we'll look at it. Go ahead and turn to Zechariah 3. Um, that, that'll, that'll let things move a little farther. Let me just show that when you get to the time of the prophets, um, and we could trace this throughout, uh, right, we'll, we'll look at Eli uh, if, if we have time. That's, that's what I hope, hope we can do. That's a good example. Eli and his sons are judged by God. Um, but, but that language there is important for, for the broader picture. But the prophets are not very friendly to the priests. They don't like them at all. Let me give you a few examples with emphasis on few. I could give you three dozen more. Ezekiel 7. Ezekiel and Jeremiah are two important ones. Hosea and Isaiah um, are, are two others. But Ezekiel and Jeremiah are particularly unfriendly. Uh, they would have been kicked off Twitter. Disaster comes upon disaster. Rumor follows rumor. <laughs> Sounds like presidential politics. They seek a vision from a prophet. Well, what's the point there? Prophets ain't given no real vision. They're seeking law, but it perishes from the priests and counsel from the elders. You see, the, the entire system is broken. Ezekiel 22, her priests have done violence to my law and have profaned my holy things. They have made no distinction between the holy and the common. Neither have they taught the difference between the unclean and the clean. They have disregarded my Sabbath so that I, that I am profane among them. Notice all five of those priestly functions we mentioned are largely uh, they have failed at there in Ezekiel 22. Jeremiah 2, the priest did not say, where is the Lord? Those who handled the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that did not prophesy. Now notice there. Priest, prophet, shepherds. It's the kings. But they're shepherds. Like Moses. Like Abraham. Like David. Climaxing in Jesus. 
Jeremiah 2, as a thief is shamed when caught, so the house of Israel shall be shamed. They, their kings, their officials, their priests, and their prophets. You see, you see that group there again. Chapter 5, an appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely. The priests rule at their direction, and my people love to have it so. Can I just, can I just be a preacher here? That's the real problem. It isn't just the prophets, the kings, and the priests. That, that, that is a problem. But my people love it so. If American evangelicals wanted the gospel, they would get the gospel from their leadership. Yeah? What to the point of what you're saying here, the writer of Hebrews is telling those people that the, that the priesthood of Levi, you know, the Levitical priesthood, is inferior to Melchizedek just for this very reason. Yeah. 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 Exactly. You do not want a Messiah from the line of Levi. Because the Old Testament, as important as the Levitical priesthood is, because they're always trying to purify the priests. It's very important to cult Israel. The problem is, is that it's corrupt to its very core. Beginning with the first, Aaron, going all the way to, to the New Testament, uh, even in, into Acts. They're all corrupt, essentially. Both theologically, with the prophets we have here, and narratively, Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and, and, and Eli and his sons. Uh, uh, Jeremiah 6. And so that's why he, Hebrews would say, you want one from a different line of priests, of Melchizedek. It isn't appointed by blood, but appointed by God. This is, this is a pure priesthood. Uh, that, that, that's why this survey is so important because we as Christians, we, I'm guilty of this. You read Hebrews, you think, who cares about Melchizedek? What has he got, a paragraph? But in the broader picture, it's central to his theology. He talks about Melchizedek in Hebrews as much as he does anyone else. Dedicates two chapters to it. For from the least to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. And they must be American. And from prophet the priest, everyone deals falsely. Um, I want you to look at uh, Lamentations. Uh, he had laid waste his booth like a garden. Notice there. That garden language. Laid in ruins his meeting place. The Lord has made Zion forget festival and Sabbath. And in his fierce indignation has spurned king and priest. Notice there. The king and priest, two separate roles, are viewed together as if they were one. Right, that's the thing. So in Israel, you have prophet, priest, king, and shepherd, if you want to. Those are three rows. But theologically, they're often portrayed as one. So what we want in the Messiah is one who embodies all of them simultaneously. Right? And so, <laughs> uh, so if, if, if we have time, you can go to Lamentations 4, uh, where the priests are declared unclean. So, so the point is, the hope of the prophets was... That God would send a true and better king, a true and better shepherd, a true and better prophet, a true and better priest. Moses himself will say in Deuteronomy 18, there is one coming after me, a prophet after me who is greater than me. So, so the buildup of the Old Testament is we're looking for this priest king. We want him. We met him with Melchizedek. It's clearly uh, developed with Adam and Noah and Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and Jethro and all, and Moses. It's clearly developed, but the hope of the prophets is one is coming. And, um, and remember, a lot of these prophets are priests. Ezekiel, Jeremiah, probably Zechariah are all priests. Yet we know them as prophets. 
Right? And this is why Ezekiel has so much to say about, about the temple, the future temple. All right, so you're in Zechariah 3. Now let me find it. Oh, there it is. Well, I lucked out there. This is one of my favorite passages in all the Bible. Uh, my first Easter here, we looked at it. If it were up to me, I would do it every Easter and probably the, every week after that. Zechariah 3. This and Revelation 5, my two favorites. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing, the Satan standing at, at his right hand to accuse him. So right away, there's a lot going on here. All right? Notice here, Joshua is the high priest. Uh, this is a vision Zechariah has. The presumption is, this is the day of atonement. He's in the presence of God. He's in the Holy of Holies. Okay? So you have the angel of the Lord, I believe is Jesus. Theologically, in the narrative, I think that's, we'll just roll with it for the sake of argument. So you, he's standing not before Yahweh, but before the angel of Yahweh, the son, Jesus, I believe, who is also going to be priest and king. So Satan there is accusing him. This is what Satan does. We looked at this passage when we studied Jude. Um, verse 2, And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. Jude quotes that. The Lord, that is Yahweh, who has chosen Israel, Jerusalem, rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Right? This is the problem with Israel. <laughs> they're, they're a mess. And how is Joshua dressed in the presence of God? He is, he, he is an absolute mess. Uh, verse 3, Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. The, the, I don't know. Does your translation have anything else other than filthy garments? What, what does y'all's translation have? Anything different? Filthy clothes. Filthy clothes? It's excrement. Head to toe. Now you know why it's translated filthy garments, right? Uh, the word filthy has become too clean, hasn't it? It means excrement. We just don't translate it that way. <laughs> we've, we've, we've cleansed the word filthy, right? Defiled. Now remember, the, 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 the priest here, high priest, he goes through elaborate ceremonies to come forth. And, and part of that is he is isolated, I believe, for a week. He, he fasts for several days. He goes through several baths. So he's put on a new robes, pure whites, like Moses when he went to the evening. Anyways, and, and uh, he, he bathes. He's put on clothes. He goes before the Lord, and there he sacrifices for his own sins. He comes back out. He bathes. He puts on new clothes again that is pure white. It can't be wool because you, you, you can't attract anything unclean, right? So, so it can't be wool. He goes back in, makes atonement for, for the priest. He comes back out. He bathes again, puts on all these clothes, new clothes that haven't been worn or used. He goes back in, makes atonement for the people. But this time, he's covered in filthy garments standing for the presence of God. And he becomes a picture for Satan of Israel, it isn't just that the high priest is filthy. All of Israel is, is filthy. And God says, you're absolutely right, the Satan. They are. They're a filthy people. Always have been. From the very beginning, with Abraham coming all the way up to the time of Zechariah. They're filthy people. But God rebukes Satan. And notice what he does, verse 4. The angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you. I will clothe you with pure vestments. Isn't that a beautiful image? Who cleanses Joshua the high priest? It's the angel of the Lord. Cleanses him. He does what the law couldn't do. He does what the rituals couldn't do. Now Israel, represented here by the high priest, is cleansed. Verse 5, 
And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. We, 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 the turban is, is a type of crown. You need to see it that way. This is presented in Exodus. It's, it's the word for crown. And yes, it is turban. It, it's a crown that says holy unto the Lord. So what we see in the vestments of, of a priest is royalty to a certain extent. And the, I, th- I think this make, makes sense. Anyways, um, put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. Verse 6, and the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge over my courts. I will give you the right of access among those who are standing. Notice grace followed by obedience, not obedience, therefore grace. Cleansing, redemption, salvation followed by obedience. This is the gospel. And a prophet you and I do not read whenever we get bored. Um, Verse 8, Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. Is the word branch capitalized there for you? Yeah, you think the editors of your translation is trying to tell you something? I'm I'm not good at grammar, but I'm pretty sure branch should not be capitalized unless it's a proper noun. It's, it's a title. If you know your Bible, you know exactly who the branch is. It's the son of David. That language is used of David, his, his, his descendant that will sit upon a throne. Um, for behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes. Seven sounds important. I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. Doesn't this sound important? The branch will remove iniquity. Much in the same way, the angel of the Lord removed the filthiness of the high priest, which represents the people. In that day, verse 10, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. Notice there, in the messianic kingdom, what is the image of peace? It's a tree. Isn't this sound familiar? We're back to Genesis 3. We haven't moved an inch. This is the, prof- the prof- prophetic hope. But notice here, who is the main characters? Joshua and his filthiness. Joshua is priest. What are they looking for? They are looking for a king who will cleanse his people as priest. The branch is king language. It's royalty language. And what does he bring with him? This priest king brings with him the kingdom. This is the hope of the prophets. And by the way, do you know who else in the Bible is named Joshua? It's Jesus. Jesus, who will stand as high priest, not filthy like this Joshua, but presented pure and clean. He's the true and better Joshua. That's good stuff, and boy, I just, just you put it all together. It's just, this is so good. All right, uh, this is this is repeated in Jeremiah. In case you want to see, this is this is consi- consistent with the prophets. Thus says the Lord God: David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel, and the Levitical priest shall never lack a man in my presence to offer burnt offerings, the burnt grain offerings, to make sacrifices forever. That's not true. They don't have them now, unless it is all in Christ. Can I prove it to you? One other passage. Turn to 1 Samuel 2. 1 Samuel chapter 2. So, 1 Samuel opens up with, we're looking for a priest. All right? Remember Hannah, her story, she wants to have a baby. And what does she say to God? God, if you give me a baby, I will dedicate him to the Lord. That's exactly what happens. 
and and he's dedicated and, and who's the high priest there Eli this is this is the household of Eli will now become the high priests so the sons of Eli will become the next high priests by the way we get this in New Testament Caiaphas and Annas are related to each other so sometimes one is the high priest and the next year the other guy's the high priest that's how they worked it out but first Samuel chapter 2 go down to verse 27 so um, Eli's sons I believe are already dead or they've been rebuked. They may die in chapter three, but they're going to die because they're, they're terrible human beings. They, they, they are um, using their position for personal gain. Okay? Uh, and so God kills them. They are, the, they are Eli's Nadab and Abihu. And, and so much as they mirror Nadab and Abihu, Eli mirrors Aaron. Right? He too uh, is, dies uh, because God takes his life. The same thing happens with, with Aaron. Uh, but go down to verse 27. It says, and there came a man of God to Eli. Now, who is the man of God? No idea. You get this in the Bible. Sometimes an unnamed person is so that we can see the message and focus less on his name. The message is what's important. So here comes an unnamed man of God. Now, Eli is supposed to be the man of God. He's the high priest. But here comes another. Here comes Moses. You see the tension? Much as you had a, you had a priest in Aaron... But Moses is doing the good stuff. Here, Eli is the priest, but here comes his unnamed source, the man of God. He will speak with the authority of God. And notice what he says. Thus says the Lord, did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? That ephod's going to be important next time we look at David. I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. There's that emphasis on, on fire again. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling? Dwelling is the tent. Uh, um, and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of, of my people Israel. Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel declares, I promise that your house... And the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. Those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Now that sounds like the Abrahamic covenant now, doesn't it? Those who bless me, I will bless. Those who curse, will be cursed. Verse 31, behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. Notice the emphasis on a house. You can play a huge role for us next week. Verse 33, The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. Now that is rough. By the way, we met him... Later in the story of David, I can't remember his name, uh, but we meet this guy. He's the only sur survivor of the household of Eli, and he becomes a priest for David. He's one of those that flees Saul. Yeah. It's not Nathan, is it? Nathan? The guy that comes in. No, oh, he's, it's a, um, I could find out for you. Um, verse 34, and this, 
that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. By the way, Phinehas is an important character, not this Phinehas. There's an earlier Phinehas that has the zeal of the Lord. He kills a man for introducing Baal worship in Israel during the wilderness. He's, he's, he's the grandson of Aaron. So that's a good Phinehas. This is like Ferb's brother Phineas, right? This is, this is, he's always on summer vacation. So it's not an accident his name is Phineas, all right? I didn't know if anyone was going to get the Phineas and Ferb uh, reference, but I'm glad you did. Um, so Hophni and Phineas shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. That, that's, that's a rough day. I will, verse 35 is the key verse. I will raise up for myself a faithful priest. Now, notice there, he cannot be of the household of Eli. That household has been gotten rid of. This is similar to what we see with Aaron. Oh, this is more total. Who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. This is the original purpose of the priest. Going all the way back to Adam, especially with the line of Aaron. But Eli is too much like Aaron. I will build him a sure house. Now, you know the story of Samuel. Who gets a house? Who builds a house in the, in the story of First and Second Samuel? Who wants to build a house? David. David. There's no temple in First and Second Samuel. That comes later. But who is it has a desire to build a house? It's not a priest. It's, God. it's a king. It's a king that gets a house. This is a prophecy. And think about what is the book of First and Second Samuel about? If you take it as one book, it opens up with the hope we need a new priest. We need a pure priest. And it sounds like it, it gets distracted with all this king stuff, but it's not distracted by the king stuff. David is the priest we're looking for in First Samuel and in Second Samuel. And we'll, we'll develop this more next week. Uh, we obviously don't know, have enough time. I just want to introduce it. So I will build him a sure house. He shall go in and out before my anointed forever. Now, who's the anointed? Christ. Yeah. The Hebrew word's Messiah. Yeah. Huh. And, and then some? Yeah, this house will, will, will come crashing down in a single day. By the way, the same thing happened to Saul, didn't it? He's another Eli. But Samuel, by the way, his sons are corrupt and evil. He's another Eli. But then there is David. How do we meet David? He's taking care of sheep. And he's called by God to be a king who then takes the role of a priest. This is just fantastic stuff. And the debate is over that anointed. Is David the anointed? Could Solomon be anointed? Is this a more ultimate anointed one, Messiah? Could be a little bit of all of it. I don't know. But notice that he will go in and out before my anointed forever. Forever. You see, he took the eternal line of Eli. and He's given it to his anointed, who we believe is ultimately Jesus. Because the promises made to David, you will never lack an heir on your throne. And so when Babylon happens, the question is, is how can that promise of God be true? We don't have a son of David on the throne. And the New Testament comes and says you do have a king upon the throne. He is in Galilee right now proclaiming, uh, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is like a sower who goes out to sow seeds. 
kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. He's the anointed, I believe, right here. He's the one that goes in and out in my presence. That's the work of a priest. But he comes as king. He's the priest king in, of the line of Melchizedek. Verse 36, everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and shall say, please put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. Notice, what will this priest do? What will this priest king do? He will feed the people. What does Jesus do? He feeds the people. That's, that's really the whole point of feeding the 5,000. And what do they try to make out of Jesus when he does that? John 6, they try to make him a king. He's already king. That's the temptation of Satan. They try to give him an arbitrary kingdom when he's already the king of, of, of the whole universe. And what is he saying? I'm really here as priest. Isn't the Bible amazing? I don't care how often you read it. It is so good. You're exhausted, I'm exhausted. and We've gone late. That's okay. We got out early Sunday night, so it works out the same. Anything you guys see, want to add, change, correct. Yeah, Don. Yeah. Look at American evangelicalism. It's true. And, and then, then it reverses. The people feed more corruption among their priests. Look, there are large churches in this country that would not look at me if I were to apply. Not because I have no experience at a megachurch. It's because I'm orthodox. That's a sad reality. And they get all the press. So... That's why I love that Jeremiah 5 passage. Um, the prophets prophesy falsely, the priests teach falsely, and my people love it so. It is all of us are guilty. So we'll have more to say about that on Easter. Anything else? We're out late, so that's okay. It's still bright outside. How about we stand up and close out in prayer? Um, yeah. Uh, Danny, since you're our priest expert, will you close us out in prayer?